Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we read Luke chapter 7. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, he behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? When the men who had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? 
They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing beside, behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed him with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii and the other fifty. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. So we start out this chapter with a couple of miracles right away. Um, he's going to heal the centurion's servant. Now, notes on that one. Uh, we're in Capernaum, which is a city on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And the centurion is a Roman soldier. You see the word century in the root of that, uh, which is a reference to a hundred. So a centurion is a commander of a hundred men. And he has servants under him as well. Uh, he's going to have some wealth to him. And one of his servants, who is highly valued by him, so a, a great servant in his house, is sick and about to die. The centurion has heard of Jesus, and he sends the Jewish elders to Jesus. Jew, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. He's a Jewish leader, right? And so the Roman centurion is just following chains of authority here. If he's going to approach Jesus, he's going to use the Jewish people to do it. He asks that Jesus come and heal his servant. The Jews actually plead on his behalf. This is, this is noteworthy because the, the impression here is Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus has come to establish a kingdom for Israel. Now, that's a false impression in a sense because he has come, his kingdom is not of this world, and he has come for both Jew and Gentile. But their impression, their thinking, is that he is a military champion who's going to set up an earthly kingdom, and he's going to do it to restore God's people. The centurion's not in that group. But look at how they speak of him. He is worthy to have you do this for him. 
He may be a Roman. He may be a Gentile, but he's a good one. Look at what he's done for us. He even built us our synagogue. So Jesus, include this one. This one's worthy to be included, which is not true of any of us, by the way, um, but saved by faith, as we see of this man and also of the woman at the end of the chapter, saved by faith, not by our works. Jesus goes, and as he's approaching, the centurion sends out friends that he's not, not even worthy to have Jesus come under his roof. He's not even worthy to be in the presence of Jesus. So here's some humility from this Roman centurion. Then he talks about authority. You say the word, let my servant be healed. I'm a man under authority. If I say do this, the soldier does it. The centurion is recognizing that his servant is actually under Jesus' authority. That if Jesus says something, the servant obeys it. If Jesus speaks a word to heal, it will happen. And Jesus marvels at this faith. He has not found such faith even in Israel, where the faith should have been, right? The people of God should have trusted in the Lord, and they didn't. When they go back to the house, they find the servant, well, healed, just as Jesus said. Now, in verse 11... We come upon another miracle of Jesus. He's going to travel south. Um, the town of Nain is probably about 12 miles or so southwest of the Sea of Galilee. So he came down the western side of the sea from Capernaum. He's followed by a great crowd, and they're going to find another considerable crowd. And this is a funeral procession. procession. Um, a widow, so she's already lost her husband. She had one son, and now she's lost him too. This is the funeral for her son. And Jesus, as we've seen him do before, well, he, he doesn't bother to be bothered by the uncleanliness of things. Right? With the leper, he touched him. That was a no-no in the Jewish society. Now he's coming up to the beer, the, the place of the casket, as they're carrying this, this young man, and he touches it. This would have been an odd display, to say the least. And then he says, Young man, I say to you, arise, and the dead man sat up. Jesus raises the dead. This is not the only time we see him do it in the scriptures. But this is, this is the first in Luke's gospel. And we will, well, we trust in this, right? This is the promise, this is our hope, that Jesus will raise the dead. But in a much greater sense, this young man is raised and he'll die again. But on the last day when Christ raises us all from the dead, we will never die again. The people are astounded, obviously, right? And they've never seen this. People don't raise the dead. And so they proclaim him a great prophet and, and that God has visited his people and word continues to spread about Jesus all over the place, including... To John the Baptist. And as we move into that text, ask your children, where is John right now? At this point in the gospel, John is in prison under Herod Antipas. 
And so John, from that prison, sends two of his disciples to Jesus, asking the question, Are you the one who is to come? Are you the Messiah? Or should we look for another? Are you not him? Two possibilities here. Either John is asking this question for himself, so he's having a crisis of faith, he's having doubt as he sits in a prison cell. Again, remember, the Jewish anticipation of the Messiah is a military champion who's going to overthrow Rome, he's going to set up a kingdom for the Jews. Well, Jesus, if that's you, why am I rotting in a prison cell? The other possibility here is that John is not having a crisis of faith, but is continuing to do what we're going to actually read in verse, what is that, verse 27 here in a moment, that he's pointing his disciples to Jesus, that he knows his days are short, and so he is transitioning his disciples to follow Jesus instead of him with this question that they would see, they would hear his response, they would see and believe. I cannot positively tell you which answer it is. Maybe it's even somehow a combination of those things, but consider them both. Now, one of the interesting notes about John being in prison here would actually be to go back to Luke chapter 6 and revisit that section on the Beatitudes and see how those Beatitudes would apply to John as he's in prison. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So he's poor in prison, but the kingdom of God is his. Blessed are those who hunger now, yeah, for he will be satisfied. Blessed are those who mourn now, yeah, he mourn in prison. Blessed are those who are reviled, hated, all of them fit, right? Interesting to consider John in that light. Anyway, Jesus' response to the disciples of John is basically to point out how he is fulfilling Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18, and chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. Look at all the miracles. See how the, these things are happening. The dead are raised, the deaf hear, lepers are cleansed, the lame walk, blind receive their sight. I'm preaching good news, even to the poor. That's what the Messiah would come to do, not to overthrow armies. And that'll happen on the last day, when armies of this world are judged. And Jesus didn't come to start a war. He came to conquer sin, death, and the devil. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So the one who hears and believes, rather than the Pharisees who hear and get upset. Jesus presses the crowd on who John was. He's not a just a reed shaken around, blown by the wind. So nothing. He's not a man dressed in soft clothing because he'd be in a king's court. He's a prophet. And then he points out that he is a prophet foretold by Malachi in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah, which, hint, hint, means here's Jesus, here's the Messiah. Then we get to verse 28. Among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. One kingdom is so superior to the other, right? The kingdom of God is so superior to the kingdom of this world that to be least in the kingdom of God still makes you greater than the greatest in the kingdom of this world. 
I don't know that I want to go as far as to suggest that this is Jesus telling us that John the Baptist doesn't believe. I don't think we want to take it that far. Instead, it is the note that even to be great here in this world, as the Jewish people loved John, right? They were going out to him to the Jordan River to be baptized by John to hear what he was preaching. So he's a great man. That's nothing compared to what we all get to be in paradise. That's the picture that we want to take from this. All right, and then verse 31, to what shall I compare the people of this generation? That phrase, this generation, is never good, right? When Jesus uses it here in Luke's gospel, which will be several times, never a positive. Instead, we see, well, Jesus tells a little parable here. Uh, it gives an analogy, I guess you would say. Children sitting in the marketplace calling to each other. Basically, it's, it's a, a lack of proper response. So we played the flute, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, so a funeral hymn, and you didn't weep. Maybe talk to your children about it as, you know, if they've ever tried to play with somebody else. Have you ever asked your friend to play with you? Um, you wanted to play house? I'll be the mommy, you be the daddy, or um, I'll be the, the brother, you be the sister, or, you know, whatever, and the other friend won't play along? That's the sort of picture that Jesus is giving here as an analogy. God has sent John the Baptist with the message to proclaim, and the proper response was not there. The leaders rejected John, and they've arrested him, and they're going to kill him. God the Father has sent even his son, and the proper response again was not there, and instead they will even kill him. The proper response, by the way, would be this. It's not dancing or weeping, it's repenting and believing. Or to use Acts chapter 2, uh, the sermon at Pentecost from Peter, repent and be baptized. The Jewish people should have heard and they should have repented of their sins. They should have believed in Christ. Some do, but not many. Then we end with a conversation around a woman who enters a Pharisee's house and is forgiven by Jesus. So Jesus is invited into the Simon the Pharisee's house. And we see this woman who is considered a sinner. We're not told what kind of sinner she is. All of us are sinners. We, we know that. But her sin must have been noteworthy, like earlier when Jesus is seen eating with the tax collectors. And it's, it's offensive to the Pharisees that he would eat with the tax collectors because they're wicked sinners. So this woman has something of that sort. Um, prostitution, perhaps. We don't know. Not from this text. Anyway, she comes up to Jesus and she's crying. Her, her tears are falling on his feet. She's using her hair to wipe his feet. Remember, feet are dirty. Um, open-toed shoes. We talked about this with John the Baptist saying he's not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals from his feet. And yet she is washing his feet with her hair. It's kind of gross when you think about it, but it shows, uh, as Jesus is going to, to say, love and faith. And then she pour, pours this ointment on his feet. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. 
Notice the touch thing again in this gospel with the leper, with the beer, and the dead man. Now you have this sinful woman. It's the idea of uncleanness. Jesus, not offended by these people. He's come to heal them. He's come to restore them. He has come to take their uncleanness and make them clean by his own blood. And so he tells Simon a little parable, right? Who, if, if a master forgives 500 denarii, that's, that's over a year. It's about a year and a half's worth of pay because a denarius is a day's wage. And he forgives another guy 50 denarii, which is, you know, less than two months. Which one will love him more? Simon answers correctly, the one forgiven more. Well, now compare that to Simon and the woman. Simon has loved Jesus a little, right? He invited him into his home. He gave him a meal. But this woman threw herself at Jesus' feet. He had no water to wash his feet with, but she washed his feet. Simon didn't greet Jesus with a kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing him on his feet. She anointed him with this ointment. She is a great sinner, yes, but she is forgiven, and she is loving in response to that forgiveness that she has received from her Savior. Again, the crowds are amazed, the people that are there, who is this who even forgives sins? That's the second time we've seen that question in the book. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's Jesus' words to the woman. And it is the word that we hear in many of our churches. Um, we specifically say something like this. I don't use the, the words, I guess, in conjunction with each other there. But having received forgiveness in the absolution, having received forgiveness by the blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper, I do close the service by telling people to go in peace. Maybe I should put those things together. You are forgiven. Go in peace. Let us praise the Lord.